Moses did not receive the Ten Commandments from God in front of millions. Here is what actually happened. Rabbi Amnon Yitzhak states that Jesus is not the Messiah, based on the following claim. I am a rational person. So I say, wait a minute, if the Lord blessed he gave the covenant of the Lord to the people of Israel, witnessed by millions, and let's say that he decided to then say, I'm really fed up with you, I don't want you any more. Now I choose Jesus and whoever follows him. That is possible, right? Why would you do it the first time in such a public way, but this time do it in secret, like a thief whispering to him behind the mountain? If you want to declare and announce a new covenant, then it should be done in public, at the very least as public as it was the first time. The rabbis think this is a very strong argument, but there are a few gaping holes in this line of thinking. Rabbi Daniel Lassur, Rabbi Ezekiel Sofer, and Rabbi Zamir Cohen all join Rabbi Amnon Yitzhak in his accusation. But the fact that they think the new covenant means God has rejected his chosen people only proves how little they know the Pentateuch. So let's get down to the bottom of Rabbi Amnon Yitzhak's words. First of all, dear rabbis, Jesus is Jewish. If God had forsaken the people of Israel and wanted to choose a new people, then he should have chosen someone who was not Jewish. It's possible that Rabbi Amnon Yitzhak forgot Jesus was Jewish, since the rabbis called him Jesus the Christian, but that doesn't alter that reality that he's Jewish. In contrast to the rabbis' sayings, the New Testament doesn't claim that the people of Israel are no longer the chosen people. It says quite the opposite, in fact. In Paul's letter to the community in Rome, he writes, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Romans 11, 1-2 Therefore, quite clearly, according to the New Testament, God did not forsake the people of Israel. In addition to that, Jesus caused thousands of Gentiles to abandon their idols and foreign gods, and to believe in the God of Israel. Many of them even had to give up their lives due to their loyalty to the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and all this thanks to Jesus. Secondly, it's important to clarify that true believers in Jesus heartily accept God's revelation to Moses on Mount Sinai. In fact, the New Testament is dependent upon this revelation. The Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, is God's word, a holy book, and the New Testament is the direct continuation of the first covenant. More than that, it has to be said, one cannot understand or appreciate the New Testament to its full depth without knowing the Pentateuch and the Old Testament. But let's go back to Amnon Yitzhak's claims. He says that Moses received the law, while millions of people were watching him. But the truth is that if one reads in the book of Exodus about the Mount Sinai event, it becomes apparent that Rabbi Amnon Yitzhak doesn't know his Bible very well. Moses did not receive the Ten Commandments from God in front of millions. Here is what actually happened. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpets and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Exodus 20, 18, 21 The people of Israel were afraid of God, and so stayed away, at a distance. The people sent Moses up to the mountain by himself, 
when Moses was with God, he was there alone. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. Exodus 34, 27-28 Remember, this is the second time already, because when Moses was on the mountain the first time, the people of Israel decided that they'd rather worship a golden calf. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Exodus 32.1 Dear reader, has the light of God's word dispelled the darkness yet? Moses received the Ten Commandments from God alone, not in front of millions of witnesses. From this, another important question arises. Can the testimony of one man's personal revelation be accepted? After all, Amnon Yitzhak ridicules and mocks anyone whom God revealed himself to individually. God's Dealings with Individuals God revealed himself individually to Adam in the Garden of Eden. On separate occasions, God revealed himself individually to Noah and Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and God made a covenant in private with faithful Abraham. Even before Mount Sinai, God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, in private. After the giving of the law, God revealed himself to King David and to the Old Testament prophets, all in private. None of them had millions of witnesses. Therefore, we can reason that Rabbi Amnon Yitzhak doesn't accept the words of the forefathers, of the prophets or of the kings in the Old Testament, to whom God revealed himself in private. It's important to understand that the New Testament doesn't claim that Jesus received a new set of laws. To the contrary, Jesus affirmed everything written in the Old Testament, but refused to accept the interpretations and commandments which the rabbis had invented and added. After all, Jesus himself said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Matthew 5.17 The Messiah is the only one who obeyed the entire law and thus fulfilled it once and for all. The special thing about the new covenant made with the blood of Jesus is that although it was made through the people of Israel, since Jesus is Jewish, it was meant to serve all the nations of the world, same as the promise God made to Abraham in private. That was the time when God promised that from Abraham's seed the Messiah would come and be a blessing to all the nations. This is the promised destiny for the people of Israel, to be a blessing to all the nations and through Jesus the Messiah. Jesus was crucified and sacrificed for the sins of humanity on Passover right in front of the people of Israel. Can Prayer Replace Sacrifice? Shortly after they rejected the Messiah, the rabbis had to solve the problem of the non-existent temple. God's decree of blood sacrifice is an inescapable reality and it is a necessary requirement in order to atone for sin. It is one of the primary and most prominent principles in the law of Moses. As written, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Leviticus 17.11 Somehow this gave rise to the rooster ritual on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, among devout Orthodox Jewish people who swing a chicken over their heads as a nod to the Old Testament, requirements for sacrifice.
but since the destruction of the second temple, the ability to offer proper sacrifices no longer exists. Those who would truly follow the Old Testament requirements must now look to the ultimate and once for all atoning sacrifice of the Messiah, as foretold by the prophet Isaiah. Although Rabbi Yehuda Brandes recognizes that the law requires a blood sacrifice, he claims the following. As the ability to offer sacrifices ceased with the destruction of the second temple, the sages suggested the solution of, we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Hosea 14.2 Prayer as a whole is the replacement for sacrifices. We need to understand that the act of prayer by itself is a real alternative to the values which the sacrifice represents. Rabbi Daniel Assur adds, Prayer replaced the sacrificial system, we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Meaning, by sacrificing bulls at the temple while the temple existed. In its absence, we approach God with our lips. He added, We will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Meaning, instead of sin and guilt offerings, prayer, repentance and study. Shortly after they rejected the Messiah, the rabbis had to solve the problem of the non-existent temple. Consequently, going against the Bible, they based a whole new system of law on the last few words from this verse in Hosea 14.2. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, Take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. First Problem The rabbinical Jewish approach that prayer replaces the need for sacrifices is based primarily on this verse. But several problems come to light with this approach. The first problem is that if the rabbinic interpretation is correct and Hosea is really suggesting that one can atone for sins with prayer, then an internal contradiction becomes obvious since in the law God demands a blood sacrifice as atonement for sins. A second problem is that close to a third of the law's commandments deal with temple worship, altar and sacrifices. If starting from the time of Hosea in the 8th century CE, there was no more need for sacrifices to atone for sins, one would expect the sacrifices among the people of Israel to stop at that time. But as any historian knows, the sacrifices continued up until the destruction of the second temple, right after the coming and crucifixion of Jesus. This fact alone proves that Hosea didn't cancel the need to continue offering sacrifices. The third and central problem is the twisted and deliberate distortion by the Masoretes of the biblical text. Until the 10th century CE, the Hebrew Old Testament didn't have all the vowels, spaces or punctuation we enjoy today. Hosea 14.2 looked a bit different in its original form. The Masoretic translation is the most common translation in Israel today, where they decided to shift one single letter, changing the meaning of the verse altogether. So we will render for Bullock's starfring of our lips, JPS. This is supposed to mean that our lips or our prayers can replace the bulls or the sacrifices. Now, the reader might be wondering how this verse was written in earlier Jewish sources before the Masoretic and JPS text. The Septuagint was written only 600 years after Hosea, about 1,200 years before the Masoretic translation. An even higher level of grammatical accuracy is contained within the Septuagint because it was penned long before the time of Jesus, meaning it was closer to the original language of Hosea 
and wasn't theologically influenced by the appearance of Jesus and the New Testament. The 70 Jewish scholars who translated the Septuagint understood and rendered Hosea 14.2 like this, For we will offer the sacrifices of our lips. In other words, with the fruit of our lips. In what we say, we will give gratitude. The words were spaced in a way that they meant fruit and not bulls. Don't miss this important point. Originally, the words were spaced in a way that they meant fruit and not bulls, but the Masoretes shifted the place of one letter, and by doing so they created a completely new meaning, on which they based solution for Judaism without a temple. The correct version, we will offer the sacrifices of our lips, rather than the altered version, we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips, is found not only in the Septuagint, but in other ancient sources as well, like the Dead Sea Scrolls and Jewish commentaries on the Old Testament from the 3rd century BC. To take this point even further, for the Masoretic translation to be accepted as proper Biblical Hebrew, the word bulls should have been close to the words our lips, meaning bulls of our lips. The sacrifices are our prayers. But this, of course, is not what the text says, and it contradicts Biblical grammar. One cannot find this term bulls of our lips anywhere in the Old Testament at all. Fruit of our lips, on the other hand, is more common and is used often in Biblical Hebrew. The Old Testament uses the word fruit over and over again, symbolically or as a synonym for a product of, just like in modern Hebrew and English too. Actually, Hosea himself gives a good illustration of this just a few sentences earlier in chapter 10. You have ploughed wickedness. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies. Hosea 10.13 Emphasis Mine So, regarding the supposition that prayer is an acceptable substitute for sacrifice to take away sin, this is based on a reinterpretation of that one in Hosea 14.2, which has been twisted to say something that Hosea did not write. The tradition replacing prayer with sacrifice is based on the verse in Hosea, but others may also refer to Psalm 141.2, which says, May my prayer be set before you like incense. May the lifting up of my hands be like the evening sacrifice. However, remember, this was written by David. A man who followed God's laws faithfully wanted to build a temple and sacrificed compass animals in accordance with God's requirements. David was saying, just as our incense and sacrifices rise to you, please may my prayers rise to you. David could prophetically see that the blood of bulls would not ultimately cleanse people from sin. Psalm 46 8 and 51 16. But that did not stop him from making the sacrifices that God required as a covering until Jesus provided blood atonement to take away sin completely, once and for all. It must also be said that despite the claim that sacrifices are not necessary, the fact that traditional Jewish prayers petition God for the restoration of the temple morning, noon, and night reveals the desire to return to the sacrificial system. The longing for the temple indicates that they still believe blood sacrifice is more important than they're willing to admit. This is just another way that the rabbis are hiding Jesus from you. Is it lawful to make substitutions for blood sacrifice? And Moses took the blood and threw it on the altar for atonement for the people. 
Exodus 24.8 As Bible students well know, blood sacrifice remains a central theme in the Torah when it comes to the atonement for sins. But today, in attempts to argue against the need for the temple and for sacrifices, and especially the sacrifice of the Messiah, certain rabbis claim that even during the time of the Pentateuch, it was possible to atone for sins without blood, but with fine flour and money. See, for example, the words of Rabbi Daniel Assur. Forgiveness of sins does not necessarily depend upon blood, but on repentance and on the offering of fine flour, without any blood. He is referring to Leviticus 5.11. Sounds reasonable, right? Let's read what the verse actually says. But if he cannot afford two turtle doves or two pigeons, then he shall bring as his offering for the sin that he has committed a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a sin offering. He shall put no oil in it, and shall put no frankincense on it, for it is a sin offering. Can flour do the trick? Superficially, and if one ignores the context of this verse, the commandment does indeed allow those who couldn't afford to purchase a lamb, kid, pigeon, or a turtle dove to sacrifice fine flour instead. How can it be possible that fine flour could substitute for a sin offering? The truth is that the answer is very simple, as will be seen in the following verses, verse 12 and 13, which Rabbi Asor didn't bother to quote. And he shall bring it to the priest, and the priest shall take a handful of it as its memorial portion, and burn this on the altar, on the Lord's food offerings. It is a sin offering. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin, which he has committed in any one of these things, and he shall be forgiven. And the remainder shall be for the priest, as in the grain offering. The priest mixed the flour with the blood of the sacrifices that was already on the altar. According to these verses, the priest should take a handful of the flour, as a reminder, and burn it on the altar, on the Lord's food offerings, meaning above the fire which was burning for God. Then the priest should make atonement for the poor man. Simply put, the priest, following his role as a mediator between God and the people of Israel, mixed the flour with the blood of the sacrifices that was already on the altar, and could thus atone for people who couldn't afford to buy an animal of their own. Nowhere in the Old Testament does it say that fine flour on its own had the ability to atone for sins, or that the life of the flesh is in fine flour. The poor could benefit from the atoning power of the altar, since the flour absorbed the blood from the altar and was then sacrificed. There is not even one verse in the entire Old Testament that implies that flour on its own has any sort of power to atone for sins. Rabbi Assur completely and intentionally took this verse out of its context. What about money? Rabbi Assur also quotes Exodus 15.16, where it says, The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel. When you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives, you shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel, and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord, so as to make atonement for your lives. According to the rabbi, this testifies that sacrifice can be substituted with money for the atonement of sin. But what does the verse really say? Does the law allow atonement for sins with money? Rabbi Assur intentionally isolates this verse clean out of its context and completely ignores even the sages. 
The term sin does not appear at all in these verses, and even the Jewish scholars have already proved that these verses have nothing to do with atonement for sin, but are related to the ransom for God's protection. It's important to know that this is the only place in the entire Old Testament where the term atonement money appears. And the context is not about sin or forgiveness, but actually a census of the people. In Exodus 30.11 it says, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, and that there be no plague among them when you number them. Readers may remember the census King David initiated on his own in 2 Samuel 24, where the census ended with a severe plague. The atonement money was intended to provide protection, and there is no connection with the forgiveness of anyone's sins. When Rashi discussed the meaning of Exodus 30.15, he said, To atone for your souls so that you will not be smitten with the plague because of the census. In other words, the word atone has no connection to atonement for sin. In Sefte Shakamimim, a rabbinical collection of Rashi's interpretations, Rashi's meaning was explained, and not to atone for your sins, as in other atonements in the law. Similarly, in Gur Arya's interpretation of Rashi, it says, This is in regards to three different money offerings. One of them pays for the animal sacrifice, and by that clarifies that the sacrifices are the atoning ones. Ransom money is not the same as atonement for sins. Please understand this. The atonement money on its own had nothing to do with forgiveness of sins. But as Rashi himself argues, the money that streamed into the temple financed the work of the priests, and more importantly, the purchasing of sacrifices for the people. The final destination of the money only supports this, with it they could buy sacrifices that would make the atonement for sins possible. Like the sages, other Jewish researchers understood this. Rabbi Hertz, for example, wrote in the commentary to Exodus 30 that the term to atone for your souls is an expansion on the meaning of the word ransom. Rabbi Hertz explains it this way. Money paid by the man who is guilty of taking the life of another under circumstances other than murder. Jewish Bible scholar Jacob Milgram, in his interpretation to Numbers 31, wrote, In God's eyes, the ransom is a necessary preventative step against a plague that could attack the people due to a census. The Rashbam, Rashi's grandson, said the same thing over 800 years ago. So even the sages and other Jewish scholars recognize that this refers to ransom money for protection and not to atonement for sins, as the sages themselves testify. But modern rabbis like Rabbi Assur prefer to twist the word of God and the law, attempting to confuse you, so that you will not recognize your need for the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. The next chapter, Is Blood Necessary for Atonement of Sins?, should serve as a closing argument for now. The sacrifice of the Messiah cannot be measured with money or flour. The blood of the Messiah is extremely costly, but the good news is that it's given to us for free, and thanks to this truth, we can enjoy forgiveness and atonement for our sins. Is blood necessary for atonement of sins? The motif of the blood is so strong, so central, and so important in the Pentateuch that it's impossible to separate it from the motif of sacrifice and atonement for sins, which are interrelated. The Pentateuch teaches that when someone sins, they must be put to death, 
or that someone or something else needs to take their place and die in their stead. But now, with no temple, no sacrifices, and no priests, more and more of the modern rabbis are refusing to recognize the importance and centrality of blood for the atonement and forgiveness of sins. The radicals among them exaggerate and take it even farther. Consider the sayings of Rabbi Daniel Assur, for example. Christianity's obsession on the subject of atonement for sins through someone else's pure blood comes from a pagan idolatry of ancient religions. Rabbi Assur found a creative way to avoid dealing with God's demand in the Pentateuch for a blood sacrifice as atonement for sins by claiming that this is paganism and idolatry. If this is true, why did God demand it from the people of Israel in such a clear way? Blood Atonement in the Bible Since the beginning in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned against God and just before God banished them from the Garden of Eden, he showed them for the very first time the principle of blood atonement on which the entire Pentateuch will be based. God kills an animal, and from its skin he makes Adam and Eve leather garments. As it is written, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Genesis 3.21 This is the first time that death appears in the scriptures. Adam and Eve, for the first time in their lives, are exposed to death, to blood that was shed as a result of sin they committed against God. Much later, on the nights before the exodus from Egypt, it was the blood of an innocent Passover lamb that was smeared on the doorposts and lintels serving as a sign for the angel of death. As it is written in Exodus 12.13, The blood shall be a sign for you, on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Later still, Exodus 24, when God made the covenant with Israel on Mount Sinai, the people of Israel went through purification by blood. God's covenant with the people was made with blood. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Exodus 24, 6-8 The Ankelos translation, the most important translation of Pentateuch to Aramaic, used in the synagogues during the first centuries after Jesus, included the word atonement in Exodus 24, 8. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the altar for atonement for the people. In Exodus 30, the Day of Atonement is mentioned for the very first time in the Pentateuch. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. With the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once in the year, throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. Exodus 30.10 Did you notice, this verse which mentions the Day of Atonement for the first time doesn't mention anything in regards to prayer, good deeds, fasting, or charity. There is no doubt that these things are important, but the Pentateuch only speaks about blood. Why? Because atonement ceremonies are strongly linked to blood. If the blood is taken away, there is no sacrifice, no atonement, no forgiveness of sins. Jewish sages acknowledge the importance of blood for atonement. 
Leviticus 16, God explains to Moses how the sins of the people of Israel will be forgiven by taking the blood which was offered at the altar and sprinkling it on the mercy seat as atonement for the iniquities and sins of the people of Israel. Even the sages recognize this. Yalkut Shimoni says on Exodus 29, There is no atonement but in the blood. In Tractate Yoma 5a it says, And he shall lay his hand, and it shall be accepted for him. Does the laying on of the hand make atonement for one? Does not atonement come through the blood? Rashi himself said, There is no atonement without blood. The sages also recognized this principle and repeated it in the Zevakim 6, Minchot 93, Sifra 4 and more. And yet Rabbi Asor calls it paganism and idolatry when God defines blood sacrifice in the Pentateuch as the only way to receive atonement and forgiveness over sins. Why is blood sacrifice essential? The book of Leviticus, the book which is dedicated in detail to the sacrifices and atonement for sins, talks about atonement 49 times. Each time, the context is always the blood sacrifices. Why is blood so important to God? In Leviticus 17.10, God commands not to eat blood, and in the next verse, he explains why the blood is so important. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Leviticus 17.11, Emphasis Mine Once again, according to Leviticus 5, even the poor who had no money to buy an animal needed to bring fine flour to the high priest. And what did the high priest do with it? He'd mix it with the blood on the altar, so it had absorbed the blood, and then he'd sacrifice it. So what if a rabbi claims that blood sacrifice is one way to receive forgiveness of sins, but not the only way? Quoting again the words of Rabbi Asur. There are various methods to obtain forgiveness of sins, like repentance, prayer, and charity. Sacrifice offerings is the less preferred way. Rabbi Asur contradicts himself, as he claimed at first that this is a pagan idolatry custom but now he is compromising by saying that it is possible to obtain forgiveness of sins through the offering of a sacrifice, but that God is not really interested in that. The answer to this is simple. A soul gives a modern excuse, specifically fabricated to hide the need for Jesus from his own people. Jesus is the Messiah whose blood was shed as a sacrifice to free us from our sins. The Jewish researcher Professor Geza Vermes wrote, According to Jewish theology, there can be no expiation without the shedding of blood. Also, Professor Bruch Levin, in his commentary on Leviticus, wrote, Expiation by means of sacrificial blood rites is a prerequisite for securing God's forgiveness. As the rabbis expressed it, there is no ritual expiation except by means of blood. To conclude, Rabbi Asur and those like him would rather contradict the sages and even the law of Moses and deal with God's requirement of blood for forgiveness of sins, and with the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one who provided for this need. Jesus is not only the priest who supplied the sacrifice for us, but he himself is the high priest, who shed his own blood to pay for our sins, once and for all. Refuting Rabbinic Objections to Christianity and Messianic Prophecies by Aiden Barr Part 1 
Messianic Prophecies, Jesus in the Old Testament. Chapter 23. The Plague of Original Sin Original sin is not a foreign Christian invention, but appears in ancient Jewish thought. When God created mankind, he gave them freedom. Freedom is a good thing, but if human beings are meant to be free, it is impossible to force them to obey God. Adam and Eve were the first human beings who were given this enormous power of free will, and they took advantage of it. They rebelled against God's command in the Garden of Eden, and the tragic consequences of their choice affected us all. This is what is known as original sin, which is thought to be a very Christian concept and not Jewish. But is that really true? The bad choices that people make have darkened the world and have affected all of humanity in many ways and forms. This is not just a case of Christian interpretation. See the words of Rabbi Shmuel Eliyahu, who wrote, The original sin, meaning the sin of the first man in the Garden of Eden, is the root of all sins. Just like a plague passes from one person to another, and at times affects hundreds of millions of people, so the original sin which was committed by Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden affects and infects all mankind. Sin is the most deadly and widespread plague ever, and it corrupts the hearts of all people, all over the world, at all times and with no exceptions. Even back in the Garden of Eden, after the first sin, but before Adam and Eve were banished, God promised that the solution to the plague of sin would come from the seed of a woman. The Old Testament prophets, Moses and all of the Bible's heroes, waited in anticipation for the time of one who was called the Messiah. In agreement with the prophets, the sages rightly declared that all the prophets which have spoken have foretold the days of the Messiah. Babylonian Talmud, San 99.71 this Messiah must have a different kind of human nature from other human beings, a godly nature, which the plague of sin cannot affect. And indeed, as was explained earlier regarding the virgin birth of the Messiah, even the sages interpreted that the Messiah would be miraculously born without a biological father. The problem is that original sin, a Messiah with a godly nature, and a Messiah without a biological father, is all starting to sound too Christian for certain contemporary rabbis who decided, not for the first time, to contradict the Old Testament and the ancient Jewish sages. See, for example, Rabbi G. Sigel, who is known for his objection to messianics and who strongly claims, Jews do not believe in the doctrine of the original sin. Is this true? The sages had very deep faith in this. It is the modern rabbis who will do everything they can to hide Jesus from you and argue against it. The New Testament undeniably validates many sections of the Old Testament regarding original sin. But then so do the old sages. Consider the following. The sages write about the original sin of Adam and Eve. Yalkut Shimoni raises an interesting rabbinic discussion regarding the question, When does evil nature enter a man? At the time of birth, or at the time of creation. The sages ask whether evil nature controls people from the time the fetus is created, or only from the time the baby comes out into the world. Either way, 
they are accepting humanity's innate sinful nature. Midrash Deuteronomy Rabbah also proves beyond any doubt that the sages understood that sin is inherited. Moses said, Lord of the world, there are thirty-six decrees that if a man breaks one of them, he must be put to death. I did not break any of them. Why do you sentence me to death? He said to me, In the sin of the first man you die, as he brought death unto the world. According to this midrash, Moses complains that he was sentenced to death. When he asks to know what sin he committed, that he should suffer death for, God answers that because of the sin of the first man, he will die. Kitzur Shulkan Aruch 131.1 In the Halakha instructions for Yom Kippur Eve, Day of Atonement, it is customary to carry out the kaparat, sacrifices, in the pre-dawn hours of the day before Yom Kippur, as then the attribute of mercy is greatest. One takes a non-castrated rooster for a man, and a hen for a woman. For a pregnant woman, both the rooster and a hen. It says here that a pregnant woman must have two chickens for caparat, one for her and one for the baby in her womb. Just like a pregnant woman with AIDS passes the virus to her baby, so sin passes through the human genome, from the woman to her fetus. To conclude, this is not a foreign Christian invention, but rather it is ancient Jewish thought recognizing the need for atonement and sacrifice for the original sin, which lives in everyone. Denying the wisdom of these particular sages is yet another example of how modern rabbis have taken away the key to knowledge and the one they are trying to hide from you, Jesus is the solution to the original sin.